KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. The amount of money throughout the American political landscape is really sometimes hard to get your head around. Unbelievable sums of money donated to campaigns. But how effective is it? How corrosive is it? What can be done about it? All good questions. To get some answers, we reached out to Dr. Johnny Thacker. He is an assistant professor of political science at Swarthmore College. Really fascinating discussion. Give a listen. So let's talk overall. I mean, money in political campaigns, money in politics. Are we at a level now that we've never seen in human history? Yeah, I I think we are. From what I've uh, been able to find out, in the year 2000, there was... uh, about 500 million spent on the presidential election. And in uh, 2020, it was at least 1.6 billion. So it's certainly been a continuous kind of rise since then. And uh, now it's, it's at an unprecedented level. How corrosive is this? Well, it's hard to say. It certainly gives a perception that money can buy elections. Um, But at the same time, it's not entirely obvious what effect that money has. So, for example, Donald Trump doesn't tend to raise as much money as you think he would, given how much airtime he gets on the media. And that's because he's able to uh, generate media attention without money. So his kind of total media time, a lot of it is not paid for. So... If you're looking for the kind of impact on a campaign, you also have to say that money isn't the only thing that can give you what you want, which is media exposure for your message and so on. But at the same time, you'd also have to say that money is very, very important in generating that airtime for candidates who who don't have Donald Trump's special capacity to uh, attract attention. These numbers we talk about, it's hard to get your head around. Do you see a point where we start to pull back from this? Or is it just going to, the numbers just going to keep getting larger and larger because basically no side wants to disarm? Right. Well, your phrase is exactly right. It seems to me like an arms race. That is, it might be the case that you could achieve roughly the same effects by scaling down by, like if every if, if every side just scaled down by, you know, 500%, uh, you might find that the results remain the same. But if somebody else is going to be spending a lot of money, then you have to spend a lot of money in response, or at least you you think you have to. People think you have to, and therefore they donate money to you. And once they've donated money to your campaign, then you do have to spend it. So a lot of uh, fundraising really takes the form of, look, the other side are going to be raising money. So we have to raise money as well. That basic structure is one that obviously is going to be the same on both sides. And that's going to lead to an arms race. So if I had to guess, I would think it's only going to go up. Is this a uniquely American phenomenon? I don't know that it's uniquely American, but I do think America is a special case, partly because of its constitutional system and the way that constitution has been interpreted in particular, as we saw in the Citizens United decision, but also prior to that, there were other decisions that struck down attempts to limit the amount of money that that could be spent. 
all in the name of free speech. So in the First Amendment of the US Constitution, you have the right to free speech being protected. And then you have that being interpreted in such a way that, that giving money, restricting the amount of money in political campaigns would be restricting political speech. That story is very American. That history of of interpreting the Constitution and, of course, the Constitution itself, but the history of interpreting the notion of free speech. In other countries, free speech is is not as... It's not interpreted in such an absolutist way. So, for example, in Germany, there are things that you can't say, such as you can't deny the Holocaust. That's illegal. That kind of restriction on free speech just wouldn't be had in, in America. So one thing is is free speech absolutism in America. Another thing that's distinctive to America might be the importance of or, or the extent of partisanship. Obviously, in most societies, democratic politics creates partisan feelings and partisan identities. But there's quite uh, robust research in political science, which shows that in the United States in particular, people tend to identify with their political parties as if they were sports teams. So, you know, you just are a Republican or you are a Democrat. And the reason why you are those things is because of your family and friends and your social uh, circumstances. And you may even very rarely come across members of the other team. And you don't particularly, your behavior isn't particularly explained through the policies of the parties. So if Donald Trump, for example, changes the policies of the Republican Party from being free trade to being protectionist in in terms of international trade policy, the voters actually don't mind that. They They don't move away from the Republican Party as a result because they first and foremost are Republicans. And then you find out what that means. And you can think about that in terms of the sporting analogy. So you might be proud that your team plays a particularly uh, attacking brand of, of soccer, for example. But as soon as you get a new manager in and you become the team that grinds out 1-0 victories, then you start becoming proud of that as well. So there's evidence that this is, this is true in many uh, democratic societies. But I think in the United States, it's particularly true. And because of that, you're going to find that people donate in a way that they wouldn't otherwise donate. Because imagine if you could donate to your, to your football team to help them win. Well, you would. I mean, that, obviously you would. I certainly would. And people have the same kind of feeling with, with politics. So some of it is about the limits that other countries put on spending, partly because they don't have this worry about free speech, And some of it is about the kind of motivational structures in terms of partisan identity in the United States. What does the amount of money we see in this country in our elections do for the general public and how they perceive the elections? I think, again, the answer is complicated because it depends where the money's coming from. When you hear about big corporations or big individuals giving money, so whether it be the Koch brothers or George Soros, for example, then it seems pretty clear that people's trust in the political system starts to break down and they start to think that 
the system is in some way kind of rigged against against ordinary people having a say. And there's a version of that in terms of out-of-state money as well, where people people get the feeling that the system's rigged because money's flowing in from, from out-of-state. But it also is worth saying that a significant proportion of money in, the, in elections comes from individual donors. And that's true in both parties, and it's true for a variety of candidates. Of course, the extent differs, right? The, the extent of, of small individual donations differs. But there's a very good website that I would recommend in terms of looking into this, which is called opensecrets.org. And that gives a lot of information and stories about donations in, in politics. And on their account, in 2020, the source of funds in the presidential election was actually 22.4% came from small individual donations, where small donations means less than $200. And then on top of that, you have large individual donations up to the maximum you can give is still over 40%. So putting it together, it's over 60% is actually coming from individuals keeping within their limits and outside of of any kind of political action committees or super PACs that can uh, be a bit cleverer about how they allow bigger amounts of money to come into politics. So there is a way, once you start thinking about the individual donations, there's a way in which it plays into American politics in uh, that's slightly counterintuitive, which is as you see that somebody's doing well in fundraising, you see that the wind is behind them. You see that they're actually doing well. And that's part of reporting in American politics. So-and-so has had a great month of fundraising and people think, oh yeah, this, is, this person's doing well. Of course, one of the difficulties is they might be raising money because they are more, getting more popular. And therefore, you can't say it's the money that's making them more popular. They're becoming more popular independently and now they're raising more money which enables them then to spend on on advertising on top of that and it's interesting you talk about that concept because i look at two senate races this year with mitch mcconnell and lindsey graham all we heard for months amy mcgrath in kentucky and jamie harrison in south carolina were raising record numbers of money you know, every month smashing fundraising records. I think if I remember, I read one where like Amy McGrath, they'd almost run out of places to spend the money. They had, and they, they both got blown out. We can tip our hat to the quality of the campaign. Specifically, I think Jamie Harrison ran a very good campaign, but wasn't competitive. Is this, this just seems like such a, a disconnect from reality where all this money's being poured into places that, as it turns out, were not really competitive races. Yeah, I mean, the literature on the effectiveness of spending money in campaigns does seem to suggest that it can be effective to some degree, but nobody thinks that it could be so effective that it can overturn a situation like the one that, say, uh, Mitch McConnell found himself in, where he's not just the incumbent, but the incumbent for a very long time, and in fact, the leader in the Senate, obviously, of, of, of the Republicans. And given the demographics of his state, it was always going to be a tall order. You know, the question would be, did the money affect it in any way, right? Did it affect it in any way? And the the general evidence seems to be that it can help challengers 
more than incumbents money that is because those challengers are likely to be less well known so they have a huge amount of ground to make up just in terms of recognition and feeling of uh, that people know who they are they trust they, they they can trust them in some way trust just in the sense of what they expect them to do they'll they're more likely to do you know because you know you've seen their face you've heard them speak and so on and that can give a feeling of confidence so money might be able to do that for the challenger it's just that it's not going to be able to overcome really big structural effects of demographics for example or or in McConnell's case incumbency as well there's going to be a special election in Georgia or I shouldn't say but two runoff elections for senate seats in Georgia and basically it's it seems like it's almost a perfect storm it's a state that while it hasn't been certified, appears to have flipped from Republican to Democrat. You had an an enormous amount of engagement in the state. And now, as it turns out, these two runoff seats will determine the power in the Senate, which is the difference between divided government and a unified Democratic government. All that being said, I think everybody expects money to just be thrown in from all directions so I guess my question, without getting into the specifics, obviously, of Georgia politics, do we hit a point where the money only can do so much in a state election because you're dealing with boundaries and there's only so many people and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, if you threw a billion at it, would it make any difference, if, if, if that's, that's the question? I, I don't think we really know, in truth, um, because there's always mixed uh, evidence on this, for one thing, but also because it's never happened, right? So um, nobody's ever ever tried uh, to throw a billion at a race where someone else was spending like 40 million or something, right? But in terms of the amounts that are actually likely to be spent, um, it's more likely to be the arms race type of thing where because one side is spending, the other side has to, has to spend. But it's also the case that the passion that's going to be there in this election because within Georgia, people are going to have the sense that this really, really matters for the future of the country. The passion that's there will then be correlated with people wanting to donate money because they want their team to win. So again, it's going to be hard to then say, well, it's the money that actually made the difference in the election. And one thing I would just add about the Georgia case in particular, it, it's, it's a useful example precisely because one of the candidates, uh, Kelly Loeffler, is actually very rich, personally. So one of the issues over campaign finance is if you didn't allow donations to pile in, whether from out of state or from in state, isn't it the case that people like Michael Bloomberg would benefit because they're rich enough to fund their own campaigns? And she probably could she probably also could fund her own campaign. So, you know, there is some benefit to um, at least opening it to, to um, out-of-state people, but also, even if it weren't out-of-state, to a range of, of donors. And I think that's shown in, in this particular case. I looked up the figures before coming on, and Reverend Raphael Warnock, he actually uh, didn't raise as much as, as his opponent, Loeffler, but he did raise 21.7 million, 80% of which came from out of state and half of which came from small donors. So that gives a picture of 
people from out of state caring a lot about who wins and trying to trying to make a, a difference. But like I said, the evidence on whether it actually makes a difference is is mixed. Um, it probably makes more of a difference for the challenger for the incumbent. So it's probably better to spend on on Warnock uh, if you're an individual donor than on on Loeffler. But at the same time, if you ask why people actually do it, they mostly seem to do it because they express themselves that way. Right? That is, just by giving money, you feel like you're participating in the struggle. It's not people aren't doing it because they have a sense that literally we can buy this thing. You know, if we can only reach this sum of money, then we can buy it. That's that's not what's going on. It, it, it's much more psychological and subjective than that. So, as someone who has you know studied the effects of money in politics, and if you had the power, would are there changes you would make to to the system, and what would be some of those changes? Well, it's a good question. I mean, if I if I had the power to do a lot of things, then you know we we would be changing uh, changing. Um, much about American politics because a lot of it is a question of what can you do within the limits set by the the Constitution and the way the Constitution has been interpreted. And you know, if we assume that that I can't change that, uh, then um, then it, it becomes hard. Unfortunately, I mean that's that's precisely where these efforts have have run aground is is on the U.S. Constitution. And at some point, people have to start wondering whether the Constitution is is actually the best constitution that there could be in this respect. I mean, I will say that what happens in other societies ought to be something of a guide if you were thinking about, well, what would an ideal system look like? You don't need it to be the case that the money is raised by individual candidates. Money could be raised by the parties. And that's certainly common in in other uh, societies that say the Republicans as such would raise money and then they would distribute it uh, to candidates. The advantage there would be that individual candidates don't have to spend so much time fundraising. And in, in the United States, it's just a huge part of becoming elected is spending time fundraising. And even once you're elected, you spend a huge amount of your time fundraising. And there are some stats on it. I've forgotten the, the figures, but um, it's it's some really large percentage of time of time uh, of elected officials is spent trying to get re-elected, where that means trying to raise funds, and so that could be taken out of the hands of individuals, and it could also be, I mean, you could also try to level the playing field by going once again for limits of the kind that the McCain-Feingold Act tried to tried to bring in, and we we've seen before. They've failed with the with with respect to this issue of free speech. So, you could also try to reverse the way that the court has thought about free speech. I mean, the absolutism doesn't follow actually from the words in the Constitution. For example, free speech is restricted for people who are privy to secrets of the government. If you if you know the government secrets, then you're not allowed to to speak freely. Edward Snowden was not allowed. To, to speak freely, right? The military are not allowed to, to speak freely about the president in the United States. So free speech isn't actually completely absolute in some areas in the United States, 
And it could be that the court uh, decided uh, to go a different way and say, well, free speech is not absolute insofar as that would lead to um, a, uh, an undemocratic situation where we don't have uh, equal voice in, in politics. So that would be one possibility, although realistically, I, I, I don't see it happening. You know, short of that, you're talking about minor changes that, that, that might happen. But the biggest thing that could happen would really be to, to rethink the whole political system. And, you know, people are talking about that. Uh, I went to a talk uh, just yesterday about the idea of replacing representative democracy entirely with something called lotocracy, where we wouldn't select our politicians by election. Rather, they would be selected by lottery, like jury service. Everybody would have to uh, be open to doing jury service, which would be you'd go to Washington and you'd, you'd for a year or so, uh, or maybe three years, and you'd have to do, you'd have to sit on a committee on a certain issue, and that's just how it would be done. You'd be on the agriculture committee or something, um, and that's a kind of exciting proposal for something that would be fundamentally different from the way uh, things are set up now. It would completely undercut the idea of of money in campaigns because there wouldn't be any campaigns, right? But obviously within the framework of the US Constitution, that seems extremely unlikely to, to happen. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. 